Today we're going to pause and look at discipleship and the call that Christ issues in the scripture uh, to come and follow him. So if you will, let's look at Luke's gospel, chapter 14. We'll begin reading with verse 25 and read down through verse 32. Luke chapter 14 and begin reading with verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have, the privilege we have through Christ our Savior to praise you, to worship you, to be assembled in your name and your presence. And we pray that as we come now to the reading of your word, that you would open our ears, open our hearts, that you would make our heart tender soil so that your word can be productive and fruitful in us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning, Assessing the Risk of Discipleship. It's arguably one of the most confusing and controversial statements that Christ made, possibly in all of the New Testament. When he sees the crowds, and at this point, obviously, he has created quite the stir. In fact, if you put the text that we just read in the context of the chapter, we know that it's the Sabbath. We know that he's been invited by a, a ruler, a leader among the Pharisees, which um, was one of the most powerful groups in Judaism at the time. He's been invited to this leader's house, and he's been observed carefully as a man with dropsy approaches him to see whether or not he's going to heal. And Christ uses this as an opportunity to uh, show the Pharisees and show those individuals gathered together the hypocrisy of their own heart because they're willing to observe the law of God or purportedly observe the law of God at the risk of this man's health. And then he continues on and he gives them an example of what it looks like to be called by Christ, to be called by the gospel of the kingdom. First, he gives a parable of a man who uh, wants to host a banquet. And he says that after he prepares the banquet, everything's been set, the table's prepared, the food's prepared, he begins going over his invitation list, and everyone that he invites, for some reason, has something else they're doing. First, someone says, well, I've purchased a field, and I need to go inspect it. Another person purchased five yoke of oxen, and he said, I need to go make sure that they're good, they're worth their while. You would assume he would have done that before he purchased them, but anyway... A third person says, well, I've recently married a wife. Well, that says enough, right? 
And I want a date night. I want a date night with my wife, so I can't come. All three have reasons why the invitation to the banquet is not enough. And so the host of the banquet simply says, well, go to the highways, go to the hedges, go to the poor, the lame, and the blind, and, and invite them to come and to be at my table. And then they did that, and still there was room, and so he cries and asks for those in the highways and hedges and compels people who are the lowly of the low to come in and to enjoy the, fr- the food that he has prepared. So it's immediately after this parable that Christ gives another, he makes another profound statement, something that theologians have debated about for centuries. And I think that when we approach verse 25, which is the, ver- the first verse of our text, sometimes we err on w- by interpreting the text either literally or we err by interpreting it simply hyperbolically and say, well, he was speaking in hyperbole. If we interpret it literally and say, well, Christ wants me to hate people in my life in order to be a disciple, then we miss the heart of what he's saying. But if we simply chuck it up and say, well, he's exaggerating the truth, I think we miss the heart of what he's saying as well. But he begins his discourse on discipleship, on following him with this controversial statement. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, no doubt the entire room was silent. Perhaps you could have heard a proverbial pin drop. What was Christ saying? This Galilean carpenter who some claim to be the promised Messiah, the anointed Lord. He just said that if I don't hate my mother and father and my own life, what kind of morose statement is that? After all, did not God say to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? And if we don't love ourselves, then how can we love our neighbor? It's about this particular verse that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German theologian, many of you perhaps are familiar with him, but uh, he died as a result of obeying Christ. He died, if you will, by, because he was a disciple of Christ. He had the opportunity during the uh, Nazi um, period in Germany to come to the States. In fact, many people encouraged him to do so, and he did for a time, but then he went back to Germany believing that if he did not suffer with the church in Germany during that horrendous period of time, that he had no reason to be their pastor afterwards, whenever the smoke cleared and they began to pick up uh, the, the broken pieces. So he went back to Germany, and he ended up dying in a Nazi prison. But he made this comment about this verse. He says, The call of Jesus teaches us that our relation to the world has been built on an illusion. All the time we thought that we had enjoyed a direct relation with men and things. And this is what had hindered us from faith and obedience. Now we learn that in the most intimate relationships of life, in our kinship with father and mother, brothers and sisters, in married love and in our duty to the community, direct relationships are impossible. Between father and son, husband and wife, the individual and the nation, stands Christ the mediator, whether they are able to recognize him or not. In other words, to simplify what Bonhoeffer is saying, he's driving home the fact that the greatest sin is not moral. The greatest sin is not for me to hate my brother, as bad as that may be. The greatest sin is not moral. The greatest sin is spiritual. The greatest sin is not for me to hate others, but for me to fail to love God. 
And so in a culture which was consumed by wanting to do something in order to prove that they were God's disciples, in order to earn their way into the kingdom, Christ utters this earth-shattering statement by saying, unless you hate all the relationships that you can perceive of in your life, and even yourself, then you cannot be my disciple. Now, Christ himself, to some extent, interprets his statement by the very next statement that he makes. In the verse that follows, in verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, notice that Christ does not say, Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Because he wasn't interested in suicide. He wasn't interested in people dying for no reason or dying for reasons that are far less than that which he would call them to. Rather, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, the risk of an all-consuming love. And this is the differentiating, differentiation that Christ is making between the other loves in our life and the love that we have for him. Ultimately, all love is all-consuming. If you think about love, the very nature of love, we as human beings were created in the image of God with the capacity, you may even say the necessity, to love and to be loved. It's part of who we are. It's innate within us. And so all love, to some extent, is all-consuming. The problem is that fallen man, oftentimes it's not the love itself, but rather the object of our love that leads us astray. So all love is all-consuming, but the risk of an all-consuming love to which Christ calls his disciples is not necessarily what you might do for Christ, because this would have appealed to the audience to which Christ was speaking, and it would appeal to you and I as well. As disciples, whenever we study discipleship, the first thing that often we want to ask is, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to be a disciple? What do I need to do to grow in my faith? Those are good questions. But Christ did not say, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it's not a question of what you can do for Christ, but rather how willing are, how willing are you to go with Christ? And this is what we see all throughout the Gospels. If you think about his inner circle, the three disciples, that his disciples, the 12 disciples were the inner circle, if you will, but there was an inner circle of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And it was the three of them that saw Christ transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was the three of them often that would have conversations, more intimate conversations with Christ, even than the other 12. But the night of Christ's passion, Mark... The Gospel of Mark, which is believed to be dictated by the Apostle Peter, tells us that Peter followed Christ afar off. And when it came to the cross, when it came to Calvary, in the shadow of Calvary, Peter denied that he even knew Christ. When just a few days before, he had told him, I would be willing to lay down my life for you. So it's not a matter of what you're willing to do for him, but how far are you willing to go with him? That is the risk of an all-consuming love. It demands everything of us. It is a high risk. Now, one more point I want to make about this is that the cross, 
to the audience that Christ was preaching would not have been a symbol of Christianity. It would not have been a symbol associated with, with our Lord, with his passion, with the atonement, with his substitutionary sacrifice. Instead, it would have been a symbol of, of death imposed by a foreign government. If a Jew wanted to kill a fellow Jew, he would stone him. And so if you're, stoned by your, if you're killed by your brothers, it's a more humane, perhaps biblical method of death, you're stoned. But if a Roman wanted to kill a Jew, he crucified him as he did other subjects. So for Christ to point to the cross, I believe he's saying two things. One, not only is the call of discipleship a call to follow Christ all the way and a call to die to ourself, but it's also a, a, an acknowledgement that that death is not something that we have the ability to do, that we have the ability to exact. Christ himself said, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of myself. The only way that you and I can follow Christ all the way is by the enabling grace of God. And so please hear this request, hear this statement, not as one that would condemn or judge, but one that casts us as ever on the cross and on the grace of God. Secondly, there's a risk of ultimate satisfaction. Whenever we assess the risk of discipleship, we've already looked at the first risk, which is the risk of an all-consuming love. The second risk is the risk of an ultimate satisfaction. And Christ basically elucidates the point that he just made whenever he says, if any man would come after me and, and uh, take up his cross, then he can be my disciple. Uh, he elucidates this, he illustrates it by two different stories. And the first he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, that story is very short. We're not overwhelmed by details. We're not told a lot. We're not told about why the man wanted to build a tower Building towers, particularly in an agrarian culture, were uh, for a variety of purposes. However, the most common purpose to build a tower in an agrarian culture like that which Christ lived in would have been for protection, to defend your, your crop or to defend your field either from an invading army or perhaps just from critters that would be creeping in. So it was for protection, a good thing. So it wasn't that this particular man in the story when Christ was making the analogy desired something bad, he desired something good. But Christ said, for which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Now, many people on a cursory reading of this text would simply say, well, Christ is saying that we should ask ourselves, are we willing, do we have what it takes? Maybe that's the way that you've understood this particular story before. If it is, no doubt that's an appealing interpretation for all of us because we have a tendency to want to do it ourselves want to know what we need to do instead of the reality of simply following Christ and going with him wherever he leads. And that's not the correct interpretation of the story. Christ is not saying, first sit down and ask yourself, do I have what it takes to be a disciple? What he's pointing to is the reality that here is a man who could not afford what he really wanted. Here is a man who at the end of the day wanted something that he could not have. Regardless of his reasons for wanting it, regardless of the object itself, the fact that it was something good that he was desiring, the ultimate truth was he could not have it. He didn't have enough money. He couldn't afford it. 
He didn't have what it took. And so it's not a matter, Christ is not asking us to consider whether we have what it takes to be a disciple. He's not saying, are you willing? And if you're not, then perhaps you shouldn't do it. What he's saying is, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes to have what you want. Now, the man has no issue with abandonment. He has no issue with being all in. The problem was that he abandoned himself to something that could not deliver. He went all in. He cashed in his chips. He went all in. And he, built, he, he endeavored to build a tower, but he could not afford to complete it. So what was the outcome? Others mocked him. He did not count the cost. Others mocked him. And he ultimately was not able to do and to accomplish that which he wanted. He wanted that which he could not have. And ultimately, whenever Christ is teaching about an all-consuming love, he summarizes the call to discipleship. He summarizes this risk of discipleship under the reality that discipleship is an all-consuming love. At the very heart of discipleship, the essence of it is an all-consuming love that wrestles with, that competes with two other loves. One, wanting what you cannot have, and two, having what you will not give. These competing loves are, are illustrated in the stories that Christ tells here. The first, wanting what you cannot have. The man who sits down and does not count the cost, but just runs forward and, and endeavors to build this tower. He wants something that he simply cannot afford. He wants something that he cannot have. Others mock him. Unlike the king in the second story that we're going to read in just a moment. He has no problem throwing everything in. He has no problem, problem giving it his all. He just simply doesn't have enough. So Christ is admonishing his listeners. He's admonishing his audience. And ultimately, he's admonishing you and I that we should assess the risk of an impulsive desire. But ultimately, he is bringing us to the precipice and showing us the reality that we want something we cannot have. Whenever you think of the tension in a believer's life, what competes with this all-consuming love for Christ, what competes with this desire, what competes with our ability to take up our cross and follow him wherever he may lead, ultimately, in our own life, and we're going to flesh this out in a bit and look at how we can apply this today, but ultimately, we wrestle with things, wanting things that we cannot have. Christ teaches his listeners, that there's a common desire that is innate within all of us. It's a competing love that all of us can identify, all of us can empathize with. It's a love that my, my son illustrates quite often. Um, in fact, I'm reminded of the last time we took a trip to St. Louis, which has been probably two, two months now, a month and a half. Uh, we stopped by the St. Louis Zoo, and uh, we went to the gift shop afterwards. In the gift shop... My oldest son, William, he finds a giraffe. It's about four feet tall. It's taller than he is. It's got good taste. It's the first thing he gravitates towards. Probably the most expensive thing in the store. <laughs> he sees it and he says, Dad, that's it. That's what I want. Now, granted, he only had maybe three quarters, but he says, Dad, that's what I want. So we get it off the shelf and we look at it, and the cost is, I think, $99. It's pretty expensive, yeah. Um, 
And then I tried to explain to him how that with his three quarters, he really doesn't have enough to afford this $99 giraffe. But he's five. I mean, he doesn't quite yet understand the value of money. So it's not until we take off the, maybe the six-inch giraffe off the shelf and we compare the two that he realizes the disparity in value. Now, I think in many ways, I'm like my son. You're like, perhaps, my son. And that we think whenever we approach life, and I'm going to apply this practically, whenever we get up each day and we look at the task that is before us and we think, I've got this, I can do, I can do this, how often do we realize, how often do we pause and pray and say, dear God, regardless of how minuscule the task may be, give me your grace, enable me to do what lies ahead. Instead, we think we have what it takes. This is ultimately, I believe, what Christ is addressing in this first story. The reality that you and I must grasp because it is, whether we like it or not, it is a subconscious passion that eats at our inner being every day. The desire to have something we cannot afford. We want something we cannot have. And it's contrasted by the second story. So if that is one polar end of the spectrum, if that's one polar extreme, one passion that competes for our allegiance to Christ, and ultimately it's not that when we come to Christ, he doesn't give us what we want. It's that we realize how small our wants truly are. We realize that Christ, that in Christ, in becoming a disciple, in taking up our cross and following him, in allowing him to be the shepherd of our souls, not only do we realize how small and insignificant our wants are, our wants become refined in the fire of his love and they become much bigger than anything we could possibly imagine. And not only do our wants change, but we find satisfaction. We find ultimate satisfaction. St. Thomas, or St. Augustine, rather, another saint, said it this way. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And every human being, and, and yes, it's easy for us to say this in the context of a non-believer. We say, well, of course, non-believers are looking for that ultimate satisfaction. We're born with a desire to worship, and we worship inevitably something, whether it be our job or whether it be um, our prestige or whether it be our, our, ourselves. We are born worshipers. And so it's easy for us to say, well, obviously a non-believer cannot have what he truly wants until he turns to Christ. But Christ is speaking here to people who are not simply non-believers, but want to know the risk of discipleship. And he's speaking to you and I, and ultimately he is challenging us that there is a passion, there is a challenge daily that you and I must confront of wanting what we cannot have and allowing Christ and his love to define for us our true heart's desires. Okay, let's go ahead and look at the risk of self-surrender. So Christ gives another story. And in this story, he talks about a king. He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, at first glance, this story may seem similar to the man building a tower. After all, it seems like both of them are being challenged to sit down and count the cost. But it is, in fact, much different, very different. 
Because Christ is identifying two extremes, two competing passions in the life of a believer. In the prior story, it was impossible to construct the reference tower. It was impossible to have that which the man really wanted. Because he didn't have the resources. He didn't have what it took. Here, it's not impossible to meet the enemy. That's what he's already started out to do. He has his men with their uniform on, their armor on, their sword to their side. He has his battle plans already drawn up. He's marching out to meet the enemy. He's marching to meet them head on. What is at stake in this particular story is the degree to which the king is willing to go in his commitment to conquest. Is he willing to be all in? In other words, the king has something that he refuses to give. So in the first story, the man wants something that he cannot have, but in the second story, the man has something, the king has something that he refuses to give. And I suggest to you that ultimately what Christ is doing in these two stories is showing us competing passions that you and I as disciples wrestle with, like it or not, on a daily basis. A desire to have something, we want something we cannot have, to have something we cannot afford, and a desire to hold back that which we have been asked to give. In all reality, this king could fight the advancing army. He could go ahead and fight. He chooses not to fight because it would cost him too much. He chooses not to fight because arguably it might cost him everything. Now some would say, well, he's a wise king. He's counting the cost. The costs are simply too great. And he had the discernment to know that and to sue for peace. But Christ is teaching about discipleship. He's not giving us a military discourse. He's not teaching us how to fight a physical war. He's teaching about, about discipleship. And so sadly lacking in this king is not the desire for conquest. It's not that his desires are um, insignificant. It's not that he doesn't desire something good. It's not the desire for conquest that is lacking, but the willingness to obtain it at any cost. Now put this in context of what Christ just said, that a disciple, someone who is a disciple of Christ, is willing to take up his cross and follow him. And Christ actually interprets this story in the very next verse when he says, So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I think on an everyday level, it's much easier for us to identify with this particular story than it is the first. Not because we don't wrestle with both, but because the first comes in a much more subtler disguise. Think, for instance, about the rich young ruler. We, we read about him in Luke chapter 18, verses 25 through, uh, or 18 through 25. The rich young ruler seemingly had everything. He was wealthy, and according to him, he kept the law of Moses from his youth up. He came to Christ and he said, Master, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said, You know the law. Thou should not steal, thou should not kill, honor thy father and mother, etc. And the man says, Well, I've done all this. I'm good. I've got it. I've got what it takes. I've done it all. And then Christ looked at him, loved him, and said, One thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. The man walks away sorrowful. And immediately Christ turns to his disciples and he says, It's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He might as easily have said it's impossible for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because ultimately what Christ was asking for, what Christ was demanding of the rich young ruler was not quantifiable. It was not simply 99% of his heart. It was everything. Unless you sell what you have. Because ultimately what the man had was an idol. He worshipped his possessions. He worshipped his wealth. He worshipped his sense of self-righteousness more than Christ. It was a charade. He wanted to follow Christ as long as the cost was not too great. But when Christ demanded everything, he decided it was time to bell and run. So what is Christ teaching us? Christ is teaching us that ultimately a disciple is one who acknowledges that death must be imposed on us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your body as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice ultimately that is alive, presented to God. And the only way that we can do that is by his enabling grace. And secondly, that we take up our cross and that we follow him. Not simply when the crowds are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but we follow him all the way to Calvary. We follow him all the way to Golgotha, all the way to the cross, and we're willing to lay down everything. We give of our lives, holding nothing back. And so ultimately, how that plays out in the life of a believer is illustrated in the two stories that we just told, that Christ just told his audience. The first scenario where we want what we cannot have, and the second where we have what we refuse to give. And Christ is admonishing you and I, as well as the audience there in Galilee or there in Judea, that we are to acknowledge that we don't have enough, that we cannot afford what it is that we truly want, and that ultimately we must cast ourselves on God, on his enabling grace, on his goodness, on his empowering spirit in our lives. And secondly, that we must give away. We must surrender all. And so my last point is assessing the risk of self-surrender. Now, let me... Um, let me apply this on a practical level. What can be concluded for you and I today from these two stories? If discipleship is lived out in the daily tension between wanting what you cannot have and having what you refuse to give, then ultimately our love for Christ is constantly being bombarded by the love for lesser things, the love for other things, things ultimately that we cannot afford and that we will not obtain. And so... Acknowledging that, I think, prepares us, by God's grace, to look out for it. His spirit in us, enabling us to be aware of that tension in our own hearts. And we realize that we settle for far less and our desires remain unfulfilled because we're unwilling to let go what we have and take up our cross and follow him. So on a personal level, whenever we look at and you can fill in the blank. You know what your struggle is. And I ask you to do that, to pause just for a minute and to think about your greatest struggle this past week. And ask yourself, how did I approach that conflict? Where were my desires? Where were my expectations? Because ultimately, the work of discipleship is the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts to us so that we become aware of ourselves. 
And with that self-awareness, we realize that we are sinners and that we are ever in need of God's grace. And as we realize that and as we grow in that awareness, ultimately the cross becomes bigger, not in our rearview mirror, not by thinking about what Christ saved us from, but what Christ is saving us from today. What we call in theological terms, sanctification. Not simply the fact that we've been justified, that we've been declared righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of Christ, but the reality that we still are sinners while righteous. And that there is a desire within us for things that we cannot have. And there's a desire to hold on to things that we should give away. So you fill in the blank. Think of a conflict. Think of a struggle that you had this week and then ask yourself, how did I approach it? What should I have done differently? What could I have given away that Christ perhaps would have asked me to give instead of clinging onto it with a death grasp? What does it look like to have something that you refuse to give? Well, as I said earlier, for many of us, this is easier of the, two, the easiest of the two scenarios to envision. It means that we hold back, that we remain in the comfort of our proverbial boat instead of walking out on the water to Christ when he bids us to come and follow him. All of us are creatures that gravitate towards a comfort zone, emotionally, spiritually, physically. We don't want someone to challenge our comfort. How challenging was it, is it, for Christ to say, take up your cross and follow me? Don't become simply a suicide victim. Don't become a martyr. Become my child. Follow me wherever I lead. It means that we shy away whenever we refuse to give something. It means that we shy away from the cross, afraid of the agony of death. We don't want to die to ourself. We don't want to cast ourselves in reckless abandon at the feet of our Savior. It means that we follow Christ until we reach the shadow of Golgotha. And then when it's inconvenient, when it's uncomfortable, that often we revert to our old ways and we do what we want to do. Now, the good news of all of this, I believe, is summarized by Christ himself the very end when he says, therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot, cannot be my disciple. That may sound like a threat to you, and I'm glad it does. It sounds like a horrible threat to me, at least to my own ambitions, to my own kingdom. But there's only one king in this world, and it's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus Christ. And ultimately, surrendering to him, this self-surrender, is risky. It is costly. It costs us everything. But the reward is far worth it. Now the good news is that Christ enables us to let go. Christ enables us to follow. Christ enables us by his spirit and through his grace, he enables us to heed the call. The discipleship is not something we need to make happen, but rather it is living daily in response to a Savior who guides us into ever greater pastures of his love. It's following, dying to ourselves and following. And so to conclude, I would trust that whenever we ask ourselves the question, 
that many of us no doubt have asked before, which is what does it mean to be a disciple? That we would hear from Christ himself in this passage defining discipleship as an all-consuming love but yet acknowledging the passions within our own heart that we have something, that we desire something we cannot have and that we have something that we refuse to give. And with the awareness of that tension that we submit ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord Jesus and that through his spirit and by his grace we become the people that he's called us to be. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we do not have enough, that we cannot afford even that which our hearts desire, as meager and feeble as our desires may be. But Lord, you have asked us, you have called us, you have commanded us to take up our cross and to follow you. And so, Father, we ask that by your grace, you would indeed enable us to obey. We know that we do not have the ability to do it on our own, that we do not have the strength, we do not have the intellect, we do not have the will. But we ask you, as your children, not as a one-time fling, but as a way of living, that we would continue to present our body a living sacrifice, that we would continue daily taking up our cross and following our master. We thank you, O oh God, for your grace that gives us the ability to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.